So we've been looking at 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery and restoration. That's Roman numeral two in your outline. And they are uh, going on the board here and they, you know, they're doing it so that number one through five is up for so long, then six to 10. And every 30 seconds or whatever they have it set for, it changes. Uh, Roman numeral four, the last eight or nine messages have been on rediscovering and restoring the entire Bible as the word of God. Uh, two of the key verses for that, one of them is listed at the top. I always list at the top uh, one of the, oh, 30 or 40 most important verses for this series. So uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is theos pneumatos, breathed by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and so forth. The key big word there is three letters, all. And, of course, we always jokingly say that all means all. Uh, pan, you know, that's a word that a lot of people are more familiar with right now because of a pandemic. Uh, pan means all. So, um, uh, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. So we looked at uh, the ideas of plenary inspiration. We looked at uh, the idea of inspiration inerrancy and infallibility. And then uh, from two to five weeks ago, we did a brief survey of the Pentateuch with a focus on Genesis. Then starting last week, we switched to a brief survey of the Pentateuch with focus on Exodus. And we didn't get as far into that as I'd hoped. So today we're going to go through some highlights of Exodus. We did a few of them last week, but I'm going to... Uh, repeat them, but hopefully not as much time spent uh, on the Trinity or, or creation because that uh, is something we could do, oh, like a 50 or 60 or 700 part series on and never exhaust all the good things we could say about the Trinity uh, and creationism. But uh, for time's sake, we will be brief about those. So the, uh, if you're, so right, right now I'm down to Roman numeral five, Big letter B, and uh, in the in the bold print it says highlights from Exodus are in A, and then the major lessons or the takeaways are the small letters B. And so we're going to go through Exodus, uh, talking about again the the small letter A is what the scripture itself says. B is the lesson we should get from it, and uh, some of some of the things that I want you to to learn and remember from that. So one of the first things we noticed about Exodus is that in Exodus, God fulfills the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 through 14, where God said, know for certain that your seed, whenever it says descendants, as uh, when Teresa was reading today, uh, we, she always uh, reads, and if you ever notice that her reading doesn't match exactly what's on the board, that's because the reading is from the New American Standard. What's on the board is from the English Standard, so that for no extra charge, you get to compare two excellent translations while you're hearing the Scripture readings. And we don't charge extra for that. So, um, what a value. Um, so... Um, So the, I think her translation said descendants. Uh, uh, in oh, what was the other word? I, I have it here, but 
Offspring. Thank you. Who said that? Elijah, was that you? Thank you, Elijah. Uh, Elijah's always sharp. Uh, and so, but, but the best translation would be your seed. And of course, the seed is the, many things in the Bible have what's uh, an idea called a double fulfillment. And so the seed uh, that, that is being talked about is Isaac, correct? But the seed that's being talked about is actually Christ, correct? Both are correct. And uh, the two are one. Uh, one and one equals one in biblical math. So, um, so know that your seed will will be strangers uh, in in a, in, a, in a slave for four hundred years. But I'll judge the nation to whom they're enslaved to. And then, of course, at the beginning of Exodus, we read about a new king that arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I read, actually watched some. Uh, some television specials on, on Egyptology, archaeology this week. And all that has to do with there's different uh, dynasties in Egyptian history, if you're an Egyptologist. And so there was a, not only a change in kings during that 400 years, but that was actually uh, when the uh, Middle Kingdom uh, gave way to the, the next dynasty. And so uh, there was actually a change in dynasties. And when that happened they very deliberately expunged a lot of the records of the previous dynasties because they didn't want anything, uh, any um, writings and so forth that didn't legitimize the new dynasty. And so a lot of things were purposely destroyed and so forth. So literally a whole dynasty arose that didn't know the history of of how Joseph and the Israelites came to be in Egypt. And so, um, you know, so at, uh, at that point, they began to fear the Israelites and they appointed tax masters over them and enslaved them and so forth. And any previous uh, good relations between the two were gone. So forth. And, they, and then, therefore, they became en enemies and the Israelites were enslaved. Now, uh, and of course, their lives were bitter with hard labor and so forth. Now, and we mentioned that the, the, one of the takeaways that I want you to keep from this, and this is something that's probably one of the, I don't know, 25 most important emphasized points of Grace Christian Fellowship over and over and over again. We're living in a time where there's very little theology of suffering in the church today. So a lot of the what gets you a big audience and big crowds is messages about you're about to have a breakthrough and you're going to prosper and everything's going to be all right and that you're, nothing is ever going to go wrong and uh, you'll always be healed and it'll, it'll be always easy. Well, uh, obviously that doesn't match real life and it doesn't match uh, God's ways. So one of the things uh, that you always want to pray, like I'm, I, I encourage people to pray certain things every day. One is that you would know the Lord. Lord, help me to know you. Two, give me a hunger for your word. 
Three, give me a thirst for your spirit and, uh, and for your presence. May I, like the psalmist said, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outsides. May I really want, you know, one of the deceptions that we get into sometimes is we, uh, we discover the importance of correct theological paradigms and so forth, and then it's all about that all the time. But what it's all about, actually, that's one of the things the article about J.I. Packer emphasized, that he was always challenging the church that not to just get, her, get around and talk about uh, church things and, and theology and what the Lord's doing, but talk about intimacy with the Lord. Talk about what the Lord's doing in your life. The inner life of a Christian should be all about the things that uh, would hinder us from fellowshipping with him. And so like if you're leading the, one of the home groups or one of the discipleship groups, as I, I call them home groups out of habit, but we're really trying to call them discipleship groups. And uh, in each case, there's two couples and we're trying to, the two couples are trying to work with that, who's the point person to most give counsel or, or discipleship to this or that person and split up so that everybody has plenty of uh, help from an older person in the things of the Lord. So um, one of the things that you should be bringing to your discipler is how is your relationship with God? It's not just uh, that I checked off the boxes of I read 17 chapters of scripture this week or whatever your goal is, and I you know, said these prayers and I did this and, and I got to witness twice or whatever, uh, but it's wh where is, where are you at with the presence of the living God? First and foremost, God is relational and anyone who knows the Lord will become very good at relationships. That's, that's one of the marks of knowing God. That's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. So if someone tells me, uh, gee, I was fellowshipping with so-and-so, and they're really growing in the Lord, and they really know all this stuff and so forth, and they're doing really well, I always want to know, good, who are they doing really well with? And actually, I'd like to know, who are they not doing so well with? Because if you're walking right with the Lord, you will always be doing well with certain people, and you'll not be doing well with certain people. And some people get along with everybody too much. And it's not always who you think it would be. In other words, um, one of the very most important, clear truths in the Bible, oh, I'm spending too much time on point one, uh, is that, you, that the opposition that you'll face are sometimes, is sometimes from very well-respected Christians. And if that's not the case, that's a problem. And it's, so it's really kind of a matter of who's kind of saying amen and who's not saying amen. 
And discerning which ones are which is a very important part of walking with God. So anyway, make sure you have an understanding that trials, temptations, difficulties, testings, those are all part of God's ordained growth paths for you. God loves you and has a lot of problems for your life. (laughs) And sometimes you're going to obey God like Joseph when he resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife and God's going to be so pleased with you, you'll be thrown into jail for seven years. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes you'll do what the Lord wants you to do, and you'll lose your job. Sometimes you'll do what the Lord wants you to do, and wonderful Christians will speak poorly of you. Sometimes you'll do what the Lord wants you to do, and you'll be uh, divided from some of your most important relationships, and your heart will be broken. They also brought that out about in the article about J.R. Packer, certain uh, relationships that were important to him that, that uh, fell apart because of certain stands he took at certain times. With some very important people. So, um, a theology of suffering, a theology of trials, uh, learning to thank God for the trials. When you start to thank God, that's when you begin to posture yourself toward the Lord and towards faith. You will never know what God's doing in your life till you have an adequate of gratitude in very difficult situations. That's when you begin to actually know the Lord. And things going badly aren't always necessarily a sign that you did the wrong thing. That's why you actually need trusted counsel in your life uh, that, that can say, you know, um, I actually uh, don't want to get into it because I've spent too much time on this point, but there's been certain very uh, wonderful turns in my life where the pastoral counsel in my life said, this is what God wants you to do, and a lot of people are going to be really upset at you for that. You know, Ray Nether has especially helped me with that. Like, the high-integrity way to go in this particular situation is this, and and the whole Grace Christian Fellowship is going to be misunderstood in the public marketplace because of that. That's just part of how you walk with God. And you won't have everyone's amen. So especially notice that verse. On, on, flip over the page and notice First Peter 5 that's listed there and, uh, in Hebrews 6. Exodus 2, that's when Moses is born. Uh, he escapes death. He's raised in Pharaoh's courts. First place the tennis is mentioned in the Bible. Moses served in Pharaoh's courts. Uh, <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, uh, he, of course, he kills the Egyptians. The Egyptian, just one, uh, flees to Midian where he gets to meet Jethro and so forth. Now, um, one of the, the uh, takeaways... Moses is one of the most clear foreshadowings of Christ in the whole Bible. 
uh, what's called tupas types. Uh, remember that Herod sent troops to call to, and to try to kill Jesus. Uh, I mentioned last week that one of the one of the whole uh, sovereign purposes of God in the whole abortion uh, issue that's a worldwide problem. Uh, you know that mothers killing their own babies. The one of the one of the things in it is because we're at a, at the beginning of a very special time in history, which may take several hundred years to unfold. But God is pouring out His Spirit. He's beginning to restore His church, and the whole church, the whole world, will be filled with the glory of God through a restored church. And it's going to be the ones who get away that will that God will use, just like Moses, just like Jesus. Um, you cannot stop the called, the elect, and the chosen. Remember that there is a Satan, there are demons. But listen to this carefully. Satan and demons are only in their heart a would-be opponent of God. In other words, everything in their motivation is to hate and oppose God's will. And yet, even they do God's will. So huge. Exodus 2. Exodus 3, the burning bush. In the burning bush, we get one of the most important things, the tetragamad. Think about it. We are, at this point, we are 53 chapters into the Bible before God reveals his most important name. God doesn't give you everything right away. If you're a baby Christian, you're maybe less than 20 or 30 years in Christ. Uh, you, are, you, you haven't even thought of some of the right questions yet. I am who I am. Uh, he who causes to be. Uh, amazing stuff. Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Uh, another takeaway from Exodus 3 is that God always prepares one person. There are some people in this room today that are being prepared for very, very special purposes. And beginning to hear that from the Lord and get arrested, so to speak. You know, uh, when uh, my, my mom used to disciple a lady named Bibi Lombardo, and her husband was one of the top mafia figures in the country, and a uh, very dangerous man, and I, uh, we, I did a lot of work at his house, and all my friends were a little freaked out when Bibi Lombardo came out and hugged me and said, oh, praise the Lord, you're so good to see you. And they're like, what the heck? Uh, but, uh, you know, he ended up becoming a Christian. And, uh, you know, he used to say that when, uh, when I said, when he lifted up his hands, it meant I surrender. 
Then after God a hold of him, when he lifted up his hands, it meant, I surrender. And, you know, um, God takes a person, and they're not always the person you would approve of. They're not all, they, they maybe aren't as good looking as they should be or have the degree from the right university. They might have gone to Wright State University instead of Harvard, <laughs> you know. And uh, and the number one way that God prepares His His person for His for His calling is what He reveals Himself to them. They know the Lord, as the Scripture says. Let him who boasts boast in this that he knows Me. There's only one thing that, you know, we, we have so much boastful pride of life. We care about how cool our car is and, and our title and our job and, and our financial status and whether we're handsome or so many things that don't matter a hill of beans. And what matters is, do we know the Lord? Now, there, there is a thing called self-deception, and it's a major theme. And it's interesting, the deeper you go in the Bible, in other words, as you get toward the end, especially when you get into Jude, 1 John, James, toward the end of the epistles, the theme of self-deception is emphasized way more than anywhere else in the Scripture. And self-deception is when you think, oh, God showed me this, and God showed me that. Like Paul talks about, him, uh, in Colossians, he talks about, uh, a person who's arrogant and who's taking their stand on visions they have seen. He's not saying that they didn't get visions from the Lord and they didn't get visitations and dreams and mighty things that happened from the Lord. Some people, God began to reveal himself like he did Samuel when, uh, when Samuel was a, a little boy. Remember when Samuel starts hearing the, the voice of the Lord and he keeps running to Eli and saying, and, and Eli's like, Go back to sleep, boy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, finally Eli discerns that the Lord's revealing himself to Samuel. But, the, but Samuel, no word that he ever said fell to the ground. And so many times we're self-promoted. And, but you know what? A deception is when nobody can tell you you've got it wrong. Listen, it's not just thing, people like pastors. I have certain people in my life, the people I love in my life the most are not just Ray Nethery and Lou Gallagher and Ned Berube, but uh, people like Deanna and Christiana and Catherine and uh, other people who, who confront me and say, you got it wrong. But they do it in a spirit that you can tell they, they care about you. And lots of people tell me they, I got it wrong. <laughs> and lots of times they're correct. But I put a lot of weight in what, where their heart is when they're doing it. Exodus 4. 
uh, God starts to equip Moses with the power of signs and wonders, and Aaron is his mouthpiece. Right? Today, we always say, where God guides, God provides. Let me tell you something. That's not always correct. Sometimes God will be guiding and he'll leave you with lack of funds and whatever else, all sorts. Where God provides, God guides actually is sometimes more correct. Sometimes, uh, what you know, Moses, it, I wish I had time to, to go through some of this with uh, scripture-wise. But, you know, uh, Moses uh, in Exodus 4, is that where we're at, Exodus 4 or 5? Uh, 4, right? So Moses says stuff like, um, you know, like I'm not eloquent in speech and so forth, and God has to say, well, who made man's mouth, right? And, you know, God gives him the, the staff that turns into a cobra and it gives him the different signs and wonders and so forth, right? But... Um, sometimes we're very focused on our own inadequacies and God has to help us see his adequacies. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There was a Christian rock band, I think, oh, what was their name? You got, yeah, Jars of Clay. And uh, we have, have this uh, treasure in Jars of Clay that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You're not ready for whatever God has if you haven't really, really got broken on the rocks of reality of your own inadequacy. You haven't really gotten, I don't know how I said it, you haven't really got ready the way God wants to equip and get you ready if you haven't been broken, I mean broken, not a little bruised or banged up, broken on the rocks of reality of your own inadequacy. When you say, say you got nothing, it's amazing how many people who are not where they should be in the Lord are always telling you how great they are. And how great the revelations they had when they were eight and, say, and all this stuff is. You know, God, the, one of the first things God did with Moses, Moses was totally afraid of how inadequate he was. Now, we, we don't think of things correctly sometimes. So we're, here's what happens when we read Exodus 4. We think Moses talks about being stammering and he's, you know, God gives him the provision of Aaron to be his mouthpiece and stuff. And we're thinking, you know, but the, that's kind of right. Listen, Moses would outclassed every person in this room by a mile. He was raised to be a prince of Egypt. You go through a special kind of education when you're supposed to become king. He was raised to be a pharaoh. He had private tutors all the time. He had the best of everything. He knew the difference. You know, today, uh, I was thinking that today I'm breaking one of the rules of fashion. I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt with a, uh, with a tie, which you're not supposed to do. 
uh, it, but it's just so darn high. And, uh, uh, and I, I thought about that, and I thought, nobody even knows that anymore, <laughs> you know? And uh, so it's okay, like, no one will know that I'm cheating. But, uh, and it's going to be 96 this afternoon. So, um, you know, but Moses would have known that. There's a difference in the way a prince is, is raised. And so uh, for him to protest that his inadequacies took a, a great work of God over a long period of time to bring him to that point. And we sometimes miss that because we read so glibly and so fast. Here was a guy who had a PhD from Harvard raised in the finest finishing schools and, and, and always around the classiest, most uh, wealthy kind of people and knew every rule of etiquette and, and how everything's supposed to be. And he's saying, Lord, don't, I, I don't, he's, he's really, really deeply troubled about his own inadequacies. That's exactly where God wanted him to be. That was part of his preparation. Chapter 5, Moses or Pharaoh mocks God. I love and hate at the same time the, when Pharaoh goes, who is this Lord God guy you're talking about? I do not know the Lord, nor will I do what he says. And I'm thinking, oh, buddy. <laughs> if, if, if you only knew half of what you're saying, you idiot. <laughs> Don't say stuff like that. Who is this Lord God guy? You know, uh, Pharaoh's about to learn. And of course, the initial response is, uh, is that, uh, by the way, I put in the last one, I put, he will hold me fast. It's one of the songs by the Gettys that I've been liking a lot lately. Because the truth is, you know what? It would take less than 1.1 second for any person in this room to fall away from God if he wasn't holding you fast. You would forget everything that God has ever done in your life and before in a half a second without the grace of God sustaining you. You know what Paul said, I know him whom I have believed, and I am confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. You understand what I'm saying? Like we, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people tell me like, I'm this serious Christian and I, God showed me a dream when I was seven and this was, you know, and you know, a dog spoke with, to me from an audible voice or whatever, you know, and the people had, like take their stand on so many crazy things. There's one thing that you can count on, him. His calling, like Paul is saying, I know him in whom I have believed. All of Paul's confidence was in Christ. None of it was in himself. Now, he knew scripture. You know, there's probably some of the leading guys in this church, like uh, Stephen Leopold, Nathan Hager, Jeff Burks, Sidney Osborne, know the most about the Bible and theology. 
you were not even in kindergarten compared to Paul. Really. A couple of you are probably first graders compared to Paul. You know, this guy had the Old Testament memorized before he was 12. This guy was discipled by the number one Pharisee of his day. God appeared to him, not in a dream. The Lord stood by his side, actually physically, at times. Scripture makes that plain. And yet he's got no confidence in himself. Well, that was the last point. I need to move on because I'm way behind schedule. Exodus is, I'm just on like chapter five. I'm going to probably go over today. This is worth, this is good stuff. If you're hearing what I'm saying today, this will change your life. But you got you to gotta hear it and you got to hold on to it. So that means you got to take these notes. It's amazing how many times the notes are still in the pews. Take these home and review them. Spend one hour reviewing these notes. It'll change your life. It will. We, we like hear the word and forget it so fast. Don't forget the word God speaks to you. Don't. It, you're a steward of it. You know, there's words that I cherish that the Lord showed me through various people at various places in my life, including that thing that every boy hates, my mother. <laughs> Actually said some things to me where that were the word of the Lord, and, I've got, and I have to cherish them. And no boy likes that. <laughs> tell it to my dad, they haven't told me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, um, some of the most important things I ever heard were my mother prophesying over me. Where were we? Number five, Exodus 5. Their, their quota of bricks stays the same. Their labor increased and so forth. Um, so takeaway from that, in God's economy, many times things get worse before they get better. We have this faith message crap has twisted and perverted the church so badly that everybody in this room has been damaged by it. Everybody in this room has been damaged by contemporary theology that's all hunky-dory. It's like Jesus discipled by Walt Disney or something. That's blasphemous. That's kind of what we think. You know what? When God's putting his finger on something in your life, this is, this is something that I had a good talk with someone over at a coffee shop this week over a muffin um, and a chocolate chip cookie, chocolate chunk cookie. When God puts his finger on something in your life, sometimes it'll look so much worse. And you'll think, you'll, you'll think like, you're this wonderful Christian, and then the Lord starts to show his spotlight. It's like, you know, those lights that go up in the sky to show the planes. And all of a sudden, he puts it in your eyes from two feet away. Where were you on the night of August 21st? Isn't that so? You know, and it's like, oh! you know, and everything's exposed. And you're like, I'm the worst Christian in the history of the world. Probably, but uh, 
But you know what? You, you're like Ray Nethery always likes to say, cheer up. You're much worse off than you think. <laughs> Something like that. And, uh, you know, the truth is you are. Part of the progress in the Christian life is that God will show you how, how perverse, how pervasive your sin is. And believe me, let me tell you, you know, like a faith message kind of thing, it's a lot worse than you think. You are really sick. But it's not just sick, because like sicknesses are caused by germs and viruses. It's more than sick. It's disgusting. You know, if you read all the prophets, our sin is compared to menstrual rags, vomit, feces, afterbirth, and other beautiful things. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing I could never take the most growing up was like, if you had to go to the restroom at a Cleveland Browns football game. <laughs> well, that's not even, I don't want to describe the men's bathroom at a Cleveland Browns football game. But it's, you know, like if you can get out of there without puking, uh, you're, you're probably a doctor or a nurse or something. <laughs> you know, uh, or a mother and a nurse at the same time. They can handle anything. Uh, that's like, your sin is way worse than you think. Only God knows how bad it is. You're just starting to see the surface of it. And guess what? He knew all that before he called you. He knew all that when he set his eternal, unchanging, covenant faithful love on you. And he called you before you even got any of it taken out of you. You know, God's love for us is more like when you're in the presence of God, sometimes it's, they're used to, uh, I might need Sydney's help with this one. Remember there was a cartoon where there was this dog that wanted a treat and then they would throw him a biscuit and he'd go, mm, 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 and he'd shoot up in the air and, and then he'd float back down to heaven and go, or to earth, I mean, and go, ah. Who was that? <laughs> Quick. And his, his sidekick, Snuffles. Yeah, so Snuffles would like float back down. Ah. You know, like God's love is amazing on, on that level. But it's so much more than that. It's covenant faithfulness. Like in the Psalms where, you know, there's that one Psalm that says, and his loving kindness is everlasting. He did this and this and this for Israel. And his loving kindness is everlasting. He did, which is that Psalm 104? What is it? 136. 136. And, the, and he did this and this, and his loving kindness is everlasting. The Hebrew for that is the word for his covenant faithfulness. In other words, before Roseanne Brown, I'm picking pick on her because she's always diligently taking notes. She's one of the best listeners we have. Uh, his, 
his, uh, before Roseanne Brown's grandparents ever thought about anything, God in all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had already chosen her. And she was wrapped into a thing that Hebrews 13.20 calls the eternal covenant. And the eternal covenant includes for Amber Poon, Philippians 1.6, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And the, the word for complete is the word for integer. He'll make it perfect, whole, more, more complete, mature. Uh, he'll add everything that's missing to it until the day of Christ Jesus. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't mess it up, Caleb. You know what? You can't. He put that covenant affection and love on you before your grandparents ever thought of you. And we do our best to squirm and run and get away, you know, and then we run from God for the first 20 years of our life or 15 or whatever, and finally he breaks everything in our life and we're a total mess and we're addicted to drugs and we're you know, overweight and we're in jail for, or whatever. We just flunked out of high school or whatever, and he's got his foot on our neck. And uh, uh, that's a terrible image for today, these days. But he's got you down. And then we stand up in church. And I want to testify. I've been searching for truth all my life, Pastor Wise. And I'll tell you, Pastor Wise, Last night, I found the Lord. You liar. You've been running from God all your life, including the first 20 years of your Christian life. And last night, he finally broke you enough to grant you repentance in that area or this area. You know, we worry because we have this ongoing sin problem, and I'm not belittling sin any. I'm just saying this. I'm over today, but you know what? you got to hear what I'm saying today. I'm, I'm going over. God is bigger than your sin. He's way bigger than your sin. And God is, is not slow to deliver you, as some call slowness, but he's all about doing it his way because he's not about to share his glory with you for it. And when you finally, 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 really believe that it's not just a matter of I need to try harder and repent more and study more and so forth, then he'll release you. You know, Peter must have been some spiritual guy. When you consider he was, he was, in, he was in jail awaiting to be executed the next day and he's so deep asleep that an angel has to punch him in the side and walk him all the way out. And then, you know, after they get past the gate, clanging iron gates, he, and he goes, oh, this is not a dream. Like, I'm, it's really happening. This, the angel of the Lord is, you know, it's like, duh. I guess he wasn't too worried, was he? 
All right, let's let's move on. I it's it's past the hour. If if anybody needs to go, uh, God have mercy on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, Exodus seven through twelve is the ten plagues. Uh, lots of people point out that they that the ten plagues. He, match uh, various gods in the Egypt's polytheistic mythology. Uh, But something I want you to take note of, Exodus 8.32 says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go, right? Exodus 9.12, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to me or to them, just listen just as the Lord had, uh, boy, I'm really getting too big for my bridges. Just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, no, when CF means confer, look up all those verses if you want. But sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is it? The answer is yes. Yeah, yes, both and. You're, you can't start making progress in theology till you start thinking in both and instead of either or. Seemingly paradoxical things are not antithetical in God's theology. Hear that? Seemingly paradoxical things are often not antithetical. They might seem from our human point to be paradoxical, but Pharaoh is responsible for hardening his own heart And God predestined that he would harden his own heart, and God caused it to happen. Go figure that out. Western minds don't like those kind of conundrums, but they're they're just true. You know, I always tell uh, single people when they start courting, they're all worried about, oh, what if he doesn't like me, or what if she doesn't like me? Get off the human level. Don't live life there. If you have worry or anxiety in your heart, you're in a really bad place. Ever. If you're struggling with any kind of anxiousness, you're just not in touch with God. That's the bottom line. That's why Jesus, in you know, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, and it's about six, six major sections, about half a chapter for each. In Matthew 6, 19 through 34, half of Matthew 6, is all about not being anxious. And the, the word anxious means that you're serving two masters in your heart. That's what it always is. And people think like having a beer or smoking a cigarette or, or you know, standing on your head or you know, doing some sexual immorality or something's going to get rid of your anxiety. It's not. Getting right with God is going to get your anxiety delivered. Period. There's no other solution. You can't take enough pills to get rid of anxiety. Anxiety is from being having two gods in your heart. It doesn't matter how busy or not busy your schedule is. It doesn't matter how much human pressure or not you, your boss has put you under or in some cases you have put yourself under. 
Uh, some of my dearest friends, like if, they, if they're having a problem, I don't even need to hear it anymore because I've known them like five or seven years. And I, so I'm having a problem. Okay, don't worry. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> Bobby McFerrin, doo, 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 you know that song? Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> you know, the, the anxiety only has one solution. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In experiencing him presently by the power of his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And if you're worried about this, that, or the other thing, it's because this, that, and the other things are rivaling God for size and priority in your heart. And sometimes it's standards you put yourself under, not that God hasn't even put you under, right? Sometimes it's expectations you've allowed someone else to put you under or you put yourself under. But if you're worried, it's God's greatest gift to you. Fall down and worship. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to worry because it's, it's the most trusty barometer. You need accurate measurements to, to do carpentry or any other thing you do. You need extra, extra, accurate instruments to measure things, no matter what you do. You know, this week I spent uh, $27 on better thermometers for three of my fish tanks <laughs> and had Stephen install them. Why? Because I need to know the temperature exactly. And uh, you got to have the right, and anxiety is God's measuring stick for you. It tells you that, it, that you are not able to say, it is well with my soul. You know, the guy who wrote that song, his, his wife and kids had just died in a fire and he, in Chicago, and he had just been told about their death, and that was his response. Right? Guess what? You have cancer. If you're a Christian, it is well with your soul. You just lost your job and you're a Christian, it is well with your soul. Your parents don't like what you're doing, it is well with your soul. You know? Uh, it's, it's simple as that. Like, you need some amens, but you don't always need them from your boss. You don't always need them from everybody in the church. Sometimes your own church, you just need certain key people in the church to say, don't worry, you're on the right path. And I'm not trying to, to negate the importance of counsel, but sometimes you need to understand God has sovereignly taken hold of your life. When Paul tells the Corinthians to glorify God in 1 Corinthians 7.31, he says, because you were bought with a price, you don't own you, and your parents don't own you either, nor anyone else. Sorry, it's so late. I'm, 
I'm going to wrap up here in five minutes. Uh, we may have to just do another week on Exodus. We're up to verse chapter 12. So let's actually do chapter 12, and we'll use that as our communion meditation. And we'll do uh, the rest of Exodus next time. So let's think about Exodus chapter 12. Hopefully you all know Exodus 12. Like if I said Exodus 12 and you're playing tennis, you would know Exodus 12 is about the Passover. That's one of those chapters every Christian should have memorized if you've been a Christian longer than three or four hours. You don't memorize the chapter, but at least understand it's the Passover. And the Passover is one of the great types in the, in the whole Bible. It's a type of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. It's why Catherine just, just bought uh, some books for cer- certain people to emphasize that, the, that we take the bread before we take the wine. Because they did it the Passover. Because it, it's always the body before the blood. And there's so many reasons for that. The, the lamb they had to slay was one year old, a male, because the lamb who was slain for us was God's only beloved son. And it was without spot or blemish because Christ never had any sin. Do you know that Christ was had the human nature that Adam had in all ways. Therefore, he was very temptable. It was theoretically quite possible that Christ could sin. That's why Hebrews makes a lot out of, in the days of his flesh, he cried out to God to deliver him. But he didn't have a sin nature like you or I do. He didn't have a sin nature like Adam was originally created without a sin nature. And Eve was created. Now, they had the real possibility of sinning, and they sinned. Christ had the real possibility of sinning, but he never sinned. He was without blemish. And the life is in the blood. So do you remember, where were they supposed to put the blood? On the lintel, on the top, is it called the lintel? Uh, and the, and the two sides, but not where? On the ground. Do you know why? Did somebody say it? Like, say it if you're going to say it. You don't trample, you don't trample uh, underfoot the blood of Christ, as, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. You know, the truth of the matter is, all of us, when we take this communion... One of the things we have to all acknowledge every time is that we don't deserve to come to this table because we have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. We've said, I'm a Christian. We've told our girlfriend we're a Christian if we're single and dating. Uh, We've told our parents we're Christians. We told the people we work with we're Christians. And then we've looked precisely like we're not a Christian so many times in the way we do our work, how often we're late to work, how often we show up with a bad attitude, how often we're lazy, how critical we are of of our spouse or what have you. 
We've trampled under the foot of blood, the blood of Christ over and over and over again. If we could even see how much our sin is, there would be nobody who could come up here today because you would be weeping so deeply. You, you, someone would have to come alongside you and help you. Like You'd have to get a guy on either side of you to pick you up and help you get up here if we really got it. You are called to amazing, holy leadership things in the kingdom of God. And yet, we've treated the things of God as if they're profane. We've been arrogant. We've been instudious. We've been lazy. We've been critical of others. We've been judgmental. We do so many things to seem like we're spiritual. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's, if you don't recognize that, that's from Luke 16. That's uh, one of Melody's favorite passages. That's the Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these slackers at GCF. And uh, if, we, if we got it at all, we, we wouldn't be able to come up here today. But guess what? Although 2,000, well, I'm sorry, 1,990 years ago, a spear was thrust into Christ's side to, because they were trying to verify that he was dead. And out came blood and water. And that blood poured on the ground. But that blood actually poured before the mercy seat of heaven, it poured before the Father. And that blood, uh, Christ cried out, Father, forgive them. They know what, not what they do. But we think the blood stopped flowing when Christ died, but the blood is still flowing. And just like the blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance, so the blood of Christ is crying out this morning for Sam Chen Sing Poon, for Robbie Johnson, for Daniel Burks. It's crying out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's still flowing. And the life is in the blood. His body was... was so so tortured that it said it was uh, you know Isaiah fifty eight or um, sorry Isaiah fifty three the Hebrew really means that it, it was mar it was beyond recognition like even Christ's mother wouldn't wouldn't have been able to recognize Christ 
we can't like if you if you ever haven't read uh someday you owe it to yourself as a devotional if you've never done this there's several good books that are about like a medical view of what Christ went through from the Passover supper all the way through to to his death and uh it's he did it because he wanted Sindhu to be able to come into his presence. And you hear this, I, I can't back this up with any scripture. You hear this by a lot of Christian theologians. And I would say that some things that there, I can't give you an exact chapter or verse for, I can tell you that the general tenor of all scripture tells us this. But a lot of theologians will say that Christ would have died if it was only for Alyssa Ferguson. And you know what? I believe that's true. I believe that God in his in the eternal covenant, you know, had um, Carson Furlow in mind. And Carson Furlow doesn't even know that yet. Think, isn't that amazing? And we're just beginning to realize it. Like, we may have been Christians for a few years or whatever, but we see in a mirror dimly. Someday we'll see face to face. Every day we wrestle against sin and we lose. Someday we won't have a sin nature to wrestle with. as Daniel was telling us this morning at 9.30. I'd encourage you not to miss the 9.30s. Could you not watch with me just one hour? So anyway, let's... Uh, I, I can't do justice, of course, to what the Passover is all about. You know, when he took the cup, the cup for Elijah... Uh, you know, it, it's always, it always blows my mind when I read Exodus 12 when they were told to eat it with their staff in their hand. <laughs> so that makes it a lot more difficult. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure that I know all of the meanings of all the symbolism. But I do know that I've, you know, there, there's the passage about Paul where Paul talks about eating it in an unworthy manner. Here's how you don't eat it in an unworthy manner. You realize that you're always eating it in an unworthy manner. <laughs> right. So we'll start at Exodus 12 and finish Exodus next week.